everybody and welcome to the Shine a Light podcast. I am here today with my friend Rena. So Rena, I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Sure. So my name is Rena Nami Dyer. Um, I am a board certified behavior analyst or a BCBA. Uh, I provide applied behavior analysis or ABA services. Um, I specialize with children with autism, but my experience also includes other developmental disabilities, working in school settings, um, just working on increasing socially significant behaviors um, and helping kids get to be as independent as possible. Okay, and you opened your own clinic. I did. Yeah, so what is the name of that? It is the Spark Center for Autism. We are located in Farmington Hills, um, and we see kids with autism through the age of 10. Okay, so we're definitely going to get into all of that, but before we get there, I kind of was curious, like, when we were growing up, we just really didn't hear much about autism. Yeah. I feel like I didn't know a lot about it until I like saw Jenny McCarthy mm-hmm. on Oprah. Or, right. <laughs> or my mom had a student that they thought might be autistic. And I was maybe in high school or college. Mm-hmm. And that was really the first time I had like known a real example of somebody who may have it. So yeah, when you, did you ever know about it before you kind of got into this field? Not really. And you know, I got into the fields not necessarily um, because of autism. I actually didn't work with a child with autism until the second year of my graduate program. Okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, growing up, we never really heard that much. Really, I feel like about developmental disabilities in general, mm-hmm. um, it was kind of always that thing where it's just they're in a separate classroom or, you know, they're somewhere else. Um, You know, not that there wasn't that much inclusion, but compared to what we see today, definitely not. Okay. So then what area did you think you wanted to go into when you were in like later in high school or getting into college? Yeah. Um, So I knew that I was interested in psychology and what I do is a field of psychology. It is a branch, Um, but I didn't quite know specifically what I wanted to do. You know, I, I, At first, when I got into college, I was thinking like, well, maybe I want to do counseling. Maybe I just want to be a child psychologist. I knew for the most part I wanted to work with children, but I just didn't know what specifically. Um, And it actually took until my senior year of college. um, And I actually was a super senior because I was a double major and a minor, not using my other major or minor now at all. So I won't talk about that. (laughs) um, It was my senior, my first senior year that I took an elective course. Um, in psychology called behavior analysis. And it was a basic research lab where I learned about behaviorism and the principles of behavior. And I actually worked with rats and pigeons. Um, So not so glamorous, but I loved it. Um, It was the first time that I had took a course in college that really clicked. Um, Everything just made sense to me. Um, And that kind of got me on down that path. I became a research assistant. I became a teaching okay. assistant. So I taught the lab. Uh, and after I graduated, I was kind of stuck because I really loved it, but I didn't want to work with rats and pigeons. I wanted to mm-hmm. work with people again. So I actually took a year off um, after graduating from undergrad and researched this field and found the applied behavior analysis field. Started applying to grad schools. Um, and then I ended up going to Florida State University for uh, grad school, which I was really fortunate to do because at the time I didn't know this, but it was considered one of the top five schools in the U.S. for behavior analysis. Um, I got to work with some really great people in the field um, and just overall was really fortunate to, to be in that program. That's awesome. And how many years of grad school? Was it two? Two. Okay. Yeah, it's a master's degree. Okay. 
Okay. So then after that, where, where did you go where next? Where did I go? Yeah. So when I was in grad school, we had to do a practicum, uh, this field to become board certified. Um, you know, like with most other mental health fields um, and medical fields, I did have to do a practicum um, that was fairly intensive. It was 1,500 hours. Uh, I had to work um, while I was in school. So, you know, while going through classes, I was working in a lot of school settings and doing in-home services. So I worked in a few different classroom settings. Some were self-contained. I actually worked a lot with um, EI, so emotional impairment. Okay. So um, kids K through two and, and three through four fifth grade and I just I loved it so much yeah. <laughs> um, you know just being able to work on different contingencies and helping these kids get into mainstream as much as possible and to really you know alter the way that we teach so that they are able to learn as opposed to trying to get them to learn the way that we teach traditionally okay, okay. Um, I want to interrupt you for one yeah. second because you said getting into mainstream and I'm just curious mm -hmm. what you mean by that yeah so um, general education okay. classroom settings okay. so um, all of these kids were in this kind of self-contained classroom okay. so um, for most of their day, they were spending their time there. Okay. Uh, whether it was working on behavior, like behavior management, um, or working on you know their 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 academic skills, mm -hmm. um, most of their day was spent there. So the goal was to try to get them into general education okay. classrooms Got if it. possible. Um, for some of them, it wasn't, uh, but that was always the goal. Okay. What is the like reasoning behind wanting to get them like? I'm just curious what yeah. like, the benefit is. To yeah. I think a lot of it, you know, does come from like traditional socialization. Okay. Um, you know, there there is this kind of expectation that kids should be able to socialize with their peers. Mm -hmm. You know, we kind of want to get kids when it comes to education, we kind of want to get them in these classroom settings of like, okay, well, when you're in second grade, this is what you should be able to do. Right. Um, you know, so a lot of it comes down to like developmental norms. Um, which, you know, throughout my career, I've also come to realize that like, well, you know, maybe that's not always um, as important as being able to get a child to um, be as independent as possible and move to the least restrictive environment. Yeah. Um, you know, because oftentimes those special education classrooms are a lot more restrictive. Okay. Um, and that can make it a lot more difficult when it comes to that transition period. Like what happens when kids turn 18? What mm -hmm. happens when they turn 21? And now they're out of that system. Right. So, okay, yeah. cool. So when you were done with your practicum, mm -hmm. what happened next? You moved back to Michigan at that I point? I didn't, okay. actually. Um, there wasn't a whole lot available in Michigan for doing ABA at the okay. time. Um, I graduated in 2013, and in 2012, Michigan had just passed legislation um, covering these services for autism. Um, okay. So things were still getting rolled out. There was still, they were putting, you know, insurance companies were still putting caps on how much you could provide for kids. Um, so there weren't really a whole lot of opportunities here. So I actually moved to Texas with my now husband because okay. um, he had an opportunity there. And Texas was surprisingly, you know, f far beyond what Michigan was. Okay. Um, so I worked for a company there doing in-home ABA services with children with autism. Um, and I say children, but it was actually through 18. So okay. I did have some, uh, some, some, teenage, adults, yeah. Yeah, some teenage clients as well. Um, and we were there for about a year. Um, I loved what I did, but the company I worked for admittedly taught me a lot of what not to do. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of kind of unethical practices. Mm, that's unfortunate. Um, yeah. I had a caseload that was way too large for, you know, our standards. Um, and of course, you know, I was living in, in 
the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So driving around to clients' homes um, in that big of an area, I was in the car sometimes, you know, three, four hours a day oh, just going from client to client. So um, that company, they also, it, it should have clicked a little sooner, but when I started working there, I think within six months, um, my boss quit and then another clinician there quit. Yeah. Um, so I took over all the caseloads. Oh, they moved me into a regional manager position and I was like, I am so underqualified yeah. for this. Yeah. So um, around that time, a old friend of mine who actually I grew up across the street from and somehow we never ended up going to the same school, but ended up in the same field. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. She moved back to Michigan um, shortly before that. And it was kind of the same situation. She couldn't find anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and she called me up and said, hey, would you be interested in moving back home to Michigan and starting a clinic with me? Um, so that was kind of how all of that yeah, happened. That's, <laughs> that's crazy. Like, yeah. just let's go Let's go start a clinic. Yeah. So, <laughs> it so was. What made you say yes? And then what first steps did you guys take? Yeah. Well, um, I said yes because I, I, w- I knew I was unhappy um, where I was. Mm-hmm. I knew that there were things going on um, at the company that shouldn't have been happening. Um, and the plan was always to go back home to Michigan. You know, I, I love being here and having been away for so many years really solidified that. Mm-hmm. Is your husband um, from here originally? Too? Yes. Okay. Yep. Okay. I was just curious. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, I said yes. And for about eight or nine months, uh, no, what, maybe about six months before, because I hadn't quit yet. Okay. Um, so for about six months before, um, I was planning on moving back home, we were talking on the phone and via Skype almost daily, um, just planning and getting everything set. Um, you know, getting a business license and, you know, learning the ins and outs of, you know, running a clinic, both from the insurance standpoint um, and from the business standpoint. Um, you know, my, my she's now my former business partner, but I'll get into that later. Yeah. Um, her father-in-law was an attorney. So, you know, we had a lot of, and her father owned his own business. So we had a lot of really good resources mm-hmm. um, from that. So then I think about a month and a half before I knew I was going to be moving back to Michigan, I ended up giving my notice okay. um, to my boss. And, you know, I wanted to make sure that I was doing it the right way because even though the company was not so great, I didn't want the kids to suffer. Yeah, you cared so. about your clients. Yeah. yeah, so I wanted to make sure that they could find a replacement and that I could take some time to train. Um, and then I provided some uh, some consultation even after I moved. Okay. So that was in 2014. Um, I moved in May. And we ended up opening in June. So, wow. um, so we talk a lot about on this podcast about just like doing things, even though you're afraid to do them, and like yeah. chasing your dream and just doing what you feel like is best. So, how did were you scared to open this clinic, <laughs> and how did you kind of just push past that yeah. fear and just do it? I know you talked logistics a little bit, but yeah, uh, I was terrified. Yeah. Um, you know, I was really scared because I didn't know how this was going to pan out. You know, it, it was still so new in Michigan, and you know, I was only at that point a year, yeah, just a little over a year into having been certified. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's funny because I look back at it now and I'm like, wow, if I, I, I'm so glad that I've done this, but I look at other people who are wanting to do something similar and I say like, maybe, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> maybe get some more experience because yeah. it was a lot. Yeah. Um, I was really fortunate that, I mean, my husband has been so, so supportive throughout this whole process. Um, because, you know, I was moving back home to do this thing where I wasn't going to be making any money mm-hmm. for a long time. Right. 
Um, so he was helping support us and we had gotten engaged when we were in Texas at that point. So we knew we were coming home to get married as well. Um, and my family, you know, was a huge support system. I was able to move back home with my parents so that we could save some money. Um, was there anybody who was like, um, I don't know that this is the best idea. (laughs) (laughs) You know, surprisingly, no. Um, other than like my husband's boss because they were upset that he was leaving but he wasn't very happy with his position either um and they also had a very kind of you know backwards look at it of well you know if you guys are going to have kids she's going to want to stay home he was like do you know her okay so you open in june 2014 yeah so before we get too much into like what your center does and all that can we i meant to do this in the beginning but can we kind of define what autism actually is yeah absolutely so um you know it's it's considered a kind of complex Um, neurobiological disorder of the brain. Um, So it affects things like development, it affects things like um, your just neurological functioning. Um, And nobody has quite been able to pinpoint why yet. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of that just comes with not having been able to do enough um, testing of the brain, really. Um, So they're still trying to figure it out. Um, You know, there's still a lot of arguments on whether it's Um, environmental or if it is genetic um, you know I kind of think that it's probably a little bit of both Mm -hmm. Um, especially considering how prevalence is so different in so many different like different environments different countries things like that but so much of it also has to do with how it's defined Um, really the definition of autism has changed so much over the years um, that part of it could also just be that what we consider those um, those definitions, those diagnostic criteria are very different here than they are somewhere else. Um, I mean, people focus a lot on things like eye contact, right? Mm -hmm. Well, in the U.S., yeah, it it could be considered abnormal to not make appropriate eye contact. But if you think about cultures like in Japan, Mm -hmm. it's rude to make eye contact. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, Yeah. so it it makes sense that the prevalence is so different. But, um, yeah, there are a lot of factors about why it seems to be increasing and you know I think some of it is yes the diagnostic criteria but I also think even things like you know individuals with disabilities are not being institutionalized as much Mm -hmm. anymore so if there is a genetic component it makes sense because it's being passed on um, more and more now but uh, that know. makes sense. Okay, and from my understanding, mm-hmm. you can totally correct me if I'm wrong. There's like a spectrum with autism, yes. so it, um, not no two people with autism are going to re- be the same, right. correct? Or like have the same behavior. Yeah. So can Absolutely. you talk a little bit about like the differences or the, or the yeah. spectrum? Yeah. Well, there are three kind of core characteristics, and this is where a lot of the spectrum does come from because it really just affects an individual so differently. The first is some kind of language delay. Okay. Um, for some kids, it means it, they're completely non-vocal or non-verbal. Um, so it's really more a matter of, you know, trying to find some kind of functional communication. So I work with a lot of kids who they don't talk mm-hmm. um, using vocal language. Um, and some of them never will. Um, it really just depends. And we still haven't quite figured out why that is, if it is biological, if it is neurological or what. Um, but we work a lot with like speech therapists to kind of figure those things out too. But okay. the opposite end of the spectrum is I work with kids who are fully verbal and maybe just have a hard time having conversations with peers. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really just depends there. Um, I work with a lot of kids who also use like what we call augmentative um, communication devices. 
So, um, you know, using iPads to talk or using picture exchange or sign language, things like that. Okay. Um, the next is a social communication deficit. So for some kids, it is a matter of, you know, not being able to play appropriately with peers or have interactions with peers. Um, but again, I've worked with kids with a very opposite problem where it's, they don't quite understand boundaries. Yeah. Um, so they're a little too social yeah. um, in those in those aspects. Um, and I think a lot of that can be, you know, the pretty stereotypical, what you see in the media in terms of like, well, they're socially awkward and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's usually some kind of restricted or repetitive patterns of behavior. So this is also, you know, you may see this pretty commonly um, depicted in media of, you know, the rocking back and forth or the hand flapping okay. or yeah. making the same vocals. Sometimes it's a lot more subtle. Um, you know, some kids will line up toys or they have things that almost seem, you know, obsessive compulsive in nature. I was going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're a center opened again, June, 2014. Mm-hmm. And what were those first few months like for you guys? Yeah. So it was just my business partner and I at first, um, just the two of us doing kind of the work of, um, everything. Um, ABA tends to work in a tiered model, so the BCBA is kind of the top of the tier. They do all of the assessing, all of the treatment planning. Um, you know, we come up with individualized treatment plans for the kids to decide what to work on based mm-hmm. on their skills and deficits. Um, and then there's usually a, um, a direct technician. This has a lot of different names. Line therapist, behavior technician, okay. frontline. Um, they're the ones who are doing most of the one-on-one work. And ABA is primarily done in a one-to-one basis. Okay. Um, but we were doing all of it because um, it was just the two of us. Yeah. So we had two clients. We each took oh. one on. Mm-hmm. Um, and about a month in, we ended up having a volunteer who wanted to um, kind of check it out. She knew my business partner from high school. She was a teacher, um, wasn't really happy in the education field. So she reached out and said, like, hey, can I come check it out, see what, what you guys are up to? What do you do? Um, and she loved it right from the beginning. So wow. she asked, you know, can I can I work for you guys? Can I study under you? Can I go to grad school and mm-hmm. become a grad student with you? That's awesome. She, yeah, she still works for me. Okay. <laughs> so she is now a BCBA, um, which is great. So we very, very slowly built up um, from there. You know, we had a 1,800 square foot space. It was teeny tiny. Um, you know, within that, the first six months, um, I think we had gotten up to about six or seven clients. Um, and at that time, again, it was, we were quickly building a, a wait list because there wasn't a lot available. Mm -hmm. Um, and the only centers that were there before we were, have been there for so long that they have, you know, one and two year wait lists. They have just been ongoing. Yeah. How Um, many centers are there that are specific for children or young now um, a lot okay um, and there are a lot of companies that do in-home services okay. as well um, so I mentioned I did a lot of in-home you know when I was in grad school and when I was in Texas and it definitely has its um, its benefits for individuals but I really felt strongly about doing center-based just because okay. of the level of oversight and the um, really the consistency sake okay. for the kids. Yeah. Um, you know, having a consistent schedule, having some predictability is really beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just makes for better practice sometimes. Yeah. So. Um, okay, question. How, so the kids that were coming to you, were they also in 
like public education and coming to in addition to public education were they coming to during the day how does that work yeah so a little bit of both um one out of our first two clients one the parents decided you know we're not going to put her in school Mm -hmm. we're going to have her come to you full time so generally the way this process works is a kid has to get a diagnosis of autism a Mm -hmm. medical diagnosis um so that has to happen first in order for insurance to cover it okay um and the diagnostic evaluation team will give a recommendation of the intensity of the services got it Um, a lot of research shows that 30 to 40 hours of ABA, um, especially for early intervention, so seeing those little ones, um, leads to the best prognosis and um, the the best, you know, I mean, we know that in research just across the board that early intervention is so important. Um, So we structured our center to be an intensive center, so seeing kids anywhere from 15 to 30 hours a week. Mm -hmm. Um, And the 15 was really more meant to be for some of those kids who maybe are in a school setting, especially preschool is usually half day. Mm -hmm. Um, So we did have both. We had one who came full time and the other who they were with us full time over the summer, but um, really wanted their child to be back in preschool for um, a half day. So by that fall, um, I believe it was he was with us in the mornings and then went to school for the afternoons. Okay. Um, so we see a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, and we usually try to work in a step-down manner where if we are ready to transition a child into school, um, we don't just go from ABA to school. Um, we do it a little more gradually. Okay. So maybe decreasing a couple days with us and increasing the time in school. Yeah. Um, so we try to work a lot with public schools as well um, to you know, make sure we're attending the IEP meetings mm-hmm. and... Um, for those of you who are, you know, familiar with special education and how that process works, it can get a little tricky um, just because of their legal requirements. Um, but a lot of the school districts have have worked really well with us. You know, we've gotten pushback on a few, but um, I think that's just the nature of the business yeah. that we work in. So. Okay. So now, how many people work for you? Um, I have 27 employees. Wow. So you yeah. went from two to 27. Yeah. Some of them are administrative, of course, but yeah. um, most of them are clinical. Okay. So. And yeah. when a, kid, a child or a young adult, because mm-hmm. you're eight, do you go up to 18? No, or, right now okay. we just go through 10. 10. Um, my okay. hope is to be able to expand in the future. Okay. It's just, it gets really difficult with insurance. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, when they do come to you, like mm-hmm. what kinds of things are you working on with yeah. the child? So a lot of what we work on um, has to do with language and communication. So building up those functional communication skills. Um, you know, I mentioned that a lot of kids are non-vocal or non-verbal, but our job really is, yes, if we can get them to use vocal speech, great. Um, but it's really just a matter of finding a way for them to communicate in a way that is functional. Um, once a child learns how to communicate in a way that they can get their wants and needs, we often see just so many other skills emerge from there. So we work a lot on functional communication, um, a lot on social skills. Um, it's again, why I have a center as opposed to doing in-home is you know we want them to be with some of their same age peers um, and get those interactions. Um, we work on anything from like imitation and motor skills, um, activities of daily living and self-help skills. Mm-hmm. So we work a lot on like toilet training, feeding, dressing, Um, And then we work a lot on behavior reduction as well. You know, a lot of people see that with autism, you tend to see maladaptive behaviors. So tantrums, aggression, self-injury. So we work on decreasing those as well. Okay. Okay. Um, At what age typically is a child officially diagnosed? Because I know... We, I, like, had a cousin who wasn't mm-hmm. speaking for a couple of years, and I know everybody was, like, so afraid mm-hmm. that the child had autism. He does not. But I, like, I just am curious, like, what age yeah. do parents start to kind of, like, go through the process? Well, um, it depends. You 
Doctors are able to see the signs generally as early as, you know, anywhere from 12 to 18 months, Mm -hmm. but doctors are so hesitant to diagnose that early just because the signs that you see with autism can often just have a delay um, and develop over time with maturation. Um, So I think if I remember correctly, nationwide, the average is probably about four or five. In Michigan, unfortunately, um, just because of you know, insurance requirements and, you know, how delayed we were in getting, you know, legislation passed um, as of, I want to say it was as of like 2016 or 17. So there still needs to be some updates, but the average age of diagnosis was seven, Hmm. um, which is pretty late. Yeah. Um, But we tend to see anywhere from age two to five or six is pretty typical. Um, But I've also worked with individuals or have, you know, spoken to families who their kid didn't get diagnosed until they were 12 or 13. Yeah. Um, so it really just depends. Okay. Do you have any kids come to you that were diagnosed late and is it harder to like start those interventions? Yeah, you know, it can be. Um, and that's actually why we started working with kids through the age of 10 is we used to see kids through age eight and we expanded because we were getting so many kids who were older Mm -hmm. when they were diagnosed. Okay. Um, and you know, it can definitely be more challenging because they have a much longer behavioral history that we're trying to work with. Um, you know, they have a longer learning history of, you know, not making progress or having a lot more problem behavior. Um, So unfortunately, a lot of the research does focus more on early intervention, but my field expands that research so that we can show that our services are going to work, whether you are two or 22 Mm -hmm. or 82. Um, You know, it can be, it can go beyond um, autism and beyond early intervention. Okay. So when a parent, parents go through kind of getting their child diagnosed, you guys are really a place for them to come get support. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about, I know that you are not a parent of a child with autism, so you may not be able to speak to this too much, but what those parents kind of go through? Yeah. Um, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think there still is so much stigma yeah. with the diagnosis of autism that for so many parents, when they hear that they're suspicion or they get that diagnosis, it's kind of like, it's earth shattering for Mm -hmm. them. Um, And sometimes it can be really difficult for them to have hope. Um, So that's where, you know, we come in and and other services too, and, you know, other advocacy groups and things like that. But um, it can be kind of a whirlwind, especially the process of just getting the diagnosis. For so many families, this is the first time that they've even heard of anything related to autism. Mm -hmm. You know, it is more in the media and there is a lot more awareness, but until it happens, half of them don't even know, what do you do for a child with autism? You know, the Where do you start? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, you know, the diagnostic centers are getting better about providing families with resources, but unfortunately, you know, I've talked to a lot of families where they get the diagnosis, they sit down with the doctor, with a psychologist or psychiatrist and they tell them, okay, your child has autism. Here is what we did for the assessment. Contact these places, mm-hmm. get ABA. Um, and nobody knows what ABA yeah. is. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's not a household. And they're in shock that. probably. And yeah. Just like, yeah. Cause you don't expect that to happen. Right. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and you know, they're at that point, it's kind of just like, okay, well, I'm just going to call every one of these centers available and just see who has the first availability because mm-hmm. there are so many wait lists or, you know, whatever it is. And 
it gets really difficult too for them to figure out, okay, well, which ones are quality service providers and do I do in-home or center-based or, you know, what are my options? So oftentimes when I get families calling me, they don't even know what I do. They yeah. don't even know what I'm going to be able to do for their child. Right. So I just have them come in first and I say, just come in and do a tour. Right. Let's sit down and let's talk about yeah. what your concerns are. And I'll talk to you about what we could possibly do. Okay. So can you talk a little bit about um, the misconceptions or kind of myths about autism? Yeah. Um, I think one of the biggest ones is um, uh, that individuals with autism are not affectionate. Mm -hmm. Um, That is not the case (laughs) at all. Um, I cannot tell you how many of my clients um, are probably the sweetest kids. They want hugs and, you know, kisses. And a lot of times we have to say like, nah, kisses are for mom and dad, you know, teaching those kinds of things. Just, they want to be able to interact with their peers. They want to be able to interact with their families. And yes, of course, there are going to be some times where there are kids who maybe aren't as affectionate, but I don't think that that's not an autism thing. Right. Um, that's just, some kids just aren't as affectionate as others. Some individuals just aren't. Um, so I think that's one of the biggest ones. Um, I think the other one is, you know, if you have a child with autism, it's like the um, the expectation that your child's going to be like Rain Man. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of the first big representation for autism, I think, in media. Um, and yeah, that that it, there are some individuals like that, but you know, the whole savant thing um, is almost its own entity. Yeah. Um, so you don't necessarily see that as um, the bigger representation. I think, again, it is a spectrum, right? So you're going to see kids who maybe you would have no idea that mm-hmm. they have an autism diagnosis. Um, so that tends to be a big one. And then, again, going back to the early intervention, that if they get the diagnosis later in life, that there's nothing that you can do. Um, and that's definitely not the case. There's always going to be options and opportunities that don't just require institutionalization. Okay. Uh, um, I know, I remember what I was going to ask you was okay. that in addition to like the emotional toll this must take on parents yeah. I imagine it's also a financial toll yeah. Um, yeah. because of all the extra services that they would get for their yes. child so you mentioned you've mentioned legislature a few times yeah so this might open a can of worms sure. <laughs> but I guess I'm curious like what's kind of being done advocacy wise for yeah this. Um, so when legislation passed in 2012 um, part of it went hand in hand with the Affordable Care Act um, so right now, there is actually no federal mandate to cover services for autism. Um, there are only individual state mandates. There is something called the Mental Health Parity Act that came with the Affordable Care Act, um, which is for mental health in general. And it basically just says that um, an insurance company or an employer who provides insurance to their employees um, cannot place more restrictions on mental health services than they do on medical or surgical. Okay. Um, so whether it's financial or you know authorization requirements or coverage in general. So what that ended up opening up was states to be able to come up with their own individual legislation. And um, you know right now it's great. There are 49 states have legislation um, to cover services for autism. Um, Tennessee is the last one. They really need to get on board. There are lawsuits. (laughs) Um, But in Michigan, what that meant was um, in 2012, it stated that insurers did have to cover the services, but at that time they were allowed to put caps. So they were putting um, monetary caps saying that they were going to cover no more than $50,000 a year for autism services. So this is ABA, which is kind of the bulk of it just because of the intensity of the services, but it also covered speech, OT, um, physical therapy, things like that. Okay. Um, you know, other mental health services. 
after a year, they, you know, Affordable Care Act said, nope, you're not allowed to put monetary caps. Um, you have to get rid of that. So then insurers tried to put hourly caps saying we're only going to cover 25 hours a week um, for the services. The next year, Affordable Care Act said, nope, <laughs> not allowed to do that. Yeah. So now um, there's not really any caps. Uh, the big thing that insurers will do is say, like, well, they have to meet medical necessity criteria. Okay. Um, so I'm sure you're probably a little familiar yeah. with that for what you do, yeah. but um, they have to meet specific criteria that make it um, so that it is there is a medical necessity. Okay. So they will narrow down or try to narrow down what we're allowed to work on with some mm-hmm. kids. Um, you know, they'll say we can't work on things that are academic in nature, or if it's a goal on a child's IEP, you can't work on it. That's its a whole other legal issue because an insurer is not allowed to take a child's IEP um, and use that to determine their services. Right, okay. Um, but, um, yeah, there is a big financial burden even with insurance coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, the big thing is that in the state of Michigan, there are what's known as self-funded policies. So an employer is able to choose to self-fund their insurance policies for their employees. And basically all that means is that rather than um, they pay pay this monthly premium that covers everything that the state requires, um, they just pay direct out of pocket what their employees use. Mm -hmm. Um, So for bigger companies, it's actually less risk because they probably assume that maybe 10% of their employees are going to utilize their full benefits Mm -hmm. outside of just their regular yearly checkups. Right. Um, If they choose to self-fund, they can actually pick and choose what they cover. Um, What they can't do is say like, well, we're only going to cover speech OTPT for autism, but not ABA. Mm. Um, They either have to cover it all or not at all. But because of that, even though we have state legislation, because of that, there are a lot of employers who will not cover autism services. So families, even though we have this legislation, there are some families who are still battling with Mm -hmm. not getting coverage. So then they're having to buy child-only policies through healthcare.gov, um, which is another premium that they're yeah. having. And those premiums usually have really high deductibles okay. um, that can be anywhere from six to $10,000 a year. Oh, that's very stressful. Yeah. Do you guys have support at your center for the parents as well? Do you do any like support groups for parents? We don't do support groups, but we do okay. do a lot of parent training. Okay. Um, so we actually require it. So any child who's getting services from us, we require that the parents come in for at least two and a half percent of their child's hours a month. Um, some will come in weekly, which is awesome. Some will only come once a month, but um, we require it because we want to make sure that once their child is no longer seeing us, the parent can feel confident that they know exactly what to do okay. at home. Um, we do offer group parent trainings as well. So we'll do like presentations and have talks and things like that, um, you know, once a month or so um, that we provide free of charge. Okay. Um, but yeah. Okay. Um, I want to know what you love about the work that you do and then what's really hard about the yeah. work that you do. Um, what I love is I really love my field in general um, and just behavior analysis and the applications of it. Um, I There's kind of a, we sound really full of it when we say this, but a lot of behavior analysts will say things like, well, behavior analysis can save the world. Mm-hmm. Um, because really, you know, when you think about it, um, all of us behave, yeah. you know, so right. there are contingencies at play that we'd be able to alter in order to help with, you know, environmental sustainability and politics and things like that. But specifically what I love is just the progress that we can make with children um, and the the hope that it does give families. Mm-hmm. Um, because I would love for, of course, and I'm sure everybody else would too, I would love for us to get to a point where if you get an autism diagnosis, 
it's not that immediate, um, oh God, what do I do? Yeah. This is the end of our lives. Um, so just being able to see the look on a parent's face when their child says hi for the yeah. first time. Yeah. Um, or if their child is able to start playing with another kid or we're able to get them in school when their parent thought like, there's no way my kid's going to be able to go into a classroom mm-hmm. setting. Um, it's amazing. Yeah. What's really hard about it is, um, you know, you're always going to have those clients that maybe don't make the progress that you hope that mm-hmm. they will. Um, and it can be really stressful. You know, you, you take on these clients and there's just, there's a lot of burnout in this field. I was going to ask that. I was literally, I was going to say, is there a lot of burnout in your field? There is, there is actually, it's, you know, it's part of what happened with my business partner, um, who's no longer my business partner. Um, you know, I, I ended up buying the company from her. Um, but just in general, there is a lot of burnout because you get so attached to these families and, um, you know, everything that you put into it, it's. It takes so much out of you, um, and you know it, it's almost an epidemic in yeah. our fields um, because of how high the burnout rates are, and just in mental health fields in general. Um, that I actually I try to work really hard to make sure that my staff don't experience that. Um, you know, I have our center is open Monday through Friday from eight to four. Um, and even though there are a lot of families who want evening hours or weekends or things like that, I have to tell them no, Mm -hmm. because my staff cannot sustain that. Um, they need to be able to go home and go to their families and have a life too, and to leave their work at work. Mm -hmm. Um, I always tell my clinicians, you know, you never stop being a behavior analyst, but you don't have to take your work home with you and you shouldn't. Um, so that can be really hard. Um, a big one is, you know, almost being looked at as if we're babysitters. Mm. You know, we're providing a medical service, um, and sometimes it can be kind of hard to get that um, expectation for families to understand that, it, no, your kid can't stay until 4.30 just because you can't pick them up. Right. You know, you have to figure that out. I can't just watch them. Right. Um, you know, no, we can't just work on all of these things that you want us to work on just because it bothers you. Mm-hmm. You know, it has to make a difference for the right. child. It has to be significant. Um, and you have to be involved. You know, it's not just you drop your kid off and that's the end of it. Yeah. It's you have to be there too. So that can be really difficult, you know, sometimes working with difficult parents. Yeah, well. I, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. What else do you do um, to avoid burnout? So me personally, um, I try to abide by the same thing that I do for my employees, which is um, when the day ends, I'm done. Yeah. Um, Which can be hard sometimes being the owner too. You know, there are other things that I have to work through, but um, you know, my husband is really good about that. And we have a, we have a one-year-old now too. So um, he's a really big motivator for me. Little Holden, that's his name. (laughs) Um, You know, knowing that like he's at home waiting for me because oftentimes like I wake up early I have to go to work early so I don't get to see him in the mm-hmm. morning um so he's my motivation to get home yeah um which is good um but really it's just a matter of you know I require that my staff take vacations mm-hmm. um so I do the same for myself yeah. even if it's just taking a day off here or there to be at home um and just I'm really bad about this, but trying not to talk about work at home. My poor husband, some days I come home and I'm just like, oh, you never guess what happened today. And he's really good about like, okay, we're going to talk about this for this long. And then. Yeah. What does he do? He is actually mostly a stay-at-home dad, but he does catering on the side. Yeah, I thought that. Okay. Okay. 
So he does some catering so very jobs different than you. <laughs> it is very different, yeah. yes. So sometimes I can, you know, just the look on his face when I'm talking about something work-related, I'm just like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll stop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, how, can you talk a little bit about, like, the judgment? I know we talked about misconceptions, yeah. but I try to be more conscious. Like, if mm-hmm. I'm at Target and there's a kid throwing yeah. a temper tantrum, I try to remind myself, like, that that kid could have autism or it could just be a kid throwing a temper tantrum and to just try to give that parent a little bit more grace of like sometimes that just happens but can you talk a little bit about like the judgment that happens yeah um that's really hard for a lot of our families um because you know to them it's again there's that stigma it's embarrassing they don't want to be um looked at as bad parents um, and it's funny because with, with behavior analysis and oftentimes the things that we have to teach the families in terms of how to deal with those kinds of behaviors, sometimes it can feel like it's um, counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if your child is throwing a tantrum, you know, it depends on, you know, why are they throwing a tantrum? Are they trying to get access to something? Do they want you to buy them something? Do they want to go home? Do they want your attention? Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of times we have to guide our families in terms of like, okay, well, in this situation, you may need to ignore it. Or in this right. situation, this is what you do. Um, and that can be really hard. And, you know, I have to say, being a new mom, that has been the biggest challenge for me as a behavior analyst because all those things that I tell parents to do with their child, I'm even having to do with my Mm one-year-old because he throws tantrums and it's just like, oh, God, (laughs) how do I, I I have so much respect for them when Mm -hmm. I tell them, like, do this. And, you know, if I get frustrated as a clinician, I have to remember, like, okay, I know what they're going through. Yeah. Um, But, yeah, I mean, that is a big one. I... I had, there, it was really sad. We had a family who, a lot of our families do spend a lot of time with each other, which is great. That is good, um, yeah. And the kids hang out outside of, you know, the, the clinic. And there was one parent where they were with another, one of our clients at McDonald's, like at Play Place or something. And they were playing a little rough with each other. And, um, you know, I think one of them pushed the other and a complete stranger went up to him and yelled at the kid. I mean, this kid's four years old. Yeah yelled at him and told him like hey you don't do that you know you keep your hands to yourself or whatever it was and it shook the parents so much because it was just like you know we didn't even have the opportunity to get to our kid yet before this stranger came up to our four-year-old and yelled at him Mm -hmm. um and the dad you know did his whole piece of like you yell at me not my kid you know he has autism blah 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 and those are the things that I think are heartbreaking is that, you know, parents always feel like they have to give a reason for it. Yeah. You know, they have to defend it. And right. That's what I want to, you know, I'm sure that's everybody's goal too, is be able to get away from that. Mm-hmm. So, okay. you know, I try to coach the parents that like, as hard as it is, you know, don't let anybody else get in the way of what you know is right. Right. Um, and what you know is best for your child. Yeah. Um, I so I imagine that that's yeah. so hard. Yeah. What can people like me who like aren't in this field and just kind of like the average everyday right. person who doesn't know much about this do to like support parents or just to like learn more about yeah. autism? So um, there are a couple good resources. The first is the Autism Alliance of Michigan. Um, They're an advocacy group in the state that they started once legislation passed. Um, And they are really fantastic for resources for families and for caregivers and just others in general. Um, They do a lot of fundraising um, and they help a lot with awareness. Um, But I think that's the big thing is that shifting gears from awareness, which I think everybody's starting to do a much better job of, Mm -hmm. um, to acceptance. Um, And kind of what you were saying, you know, if you see somebody in a store and they're struggling with, you know, their child 
um, you know, engaging in a tantrum or whatever it is, um, you know, I think there's always that hesitation of like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, butt in or anything like that. But honestly, sometimes all that parent needs is for you to tell them like, you're doing great. Yeah. Hang in there. Mm -hmm. Um, reminding families and parents to be kind to themselves. Um, there's so much pressure for them to do every single thing for their child. You know, we've we've had some of those group parent trainings where we'll have parents who have been doing this for a long time and parents who are newer. And it's like sometimes even those parents who have been doing it for a long time, it's like they almost put more pressure on the new parents saying like, well, you have to do this, 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 mm. this, and this because we did that for our kid and yeah. he's still not doing, you know. Yeah. And it's like, no, let's yeah. take it one step at a time and remember right. that you're doing everything that you can. Um, and it's not your fault and it's okay and we'll get you through it. Um, but just remembering to just be kind to themselves, um, give themselves an outlet. And, you know, you've talked on your podcast before about, um, therapy Mm -hmm. and how there is absolutely no shame in getting therapy. And we encourage it for all of our families. And I encourage it for my staff too, that outside of here, do something, take care of yourself it's important because if you can't take care of yourself, how are you ever going to take care of this child who needs so much more exactly um, care? So yeah, yeah. Okay, and then the media thing. So you mm-hmm. mentioned media a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, is there has there been anything that media that pro- portrays it in the right way? I, there was a show on Netflix, and I cannot remember the name of it right now, but it was about like a teenager with autism. And I was just curious. If, I'll try to look it up real quick. But I was just mm-hmm. curious if if you knew anything about that or if that was yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it's getting better. Um, but I think with so many other, um, with so many other fields and with so many other things, you know, people want representation. Yeah. Um, so, you know, even though there are some shows that are starting to do it better, you know, I've heard good things about the good doctor. Okay. Um, parenthood was another one. Atypical is a show. I was that, yeah. yeah. Um, and that one, I, I heard good things, but I also heard kind of mixed things of like, well, yes, it was good, but you know, there's always going to be those opponents who say like, oh, but that's not, that's not representative. Yeah. And it's like, well, yes, it's a spectrum, right? right? So right. you're never going to be able to hit on every single thing. But yeah. I think what we're starting to see a lot more in media is being able to see a lot of the, um, I hate using the the phrase like high functioning um, because that, you know, I don't think that that's really a, a, the best way to describe it, but that's kind of how people look at it as we're seeing a lot more stories and a lot more um, attention to individuals with autism who are higher functioning mm-hmm. um, and who were able to, you know, go out into the world and go to college or become a doctor or whatever it is. And yes, that does happen a lot, but sometimes the other end of the spectrum gets left off. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I think parenthood actually did a pretty good job because, and I can't remember the character's names, but um, it she was blonde, that was the mom, mm-hmm. and they had a child with... The son, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I think they considered it Asperger's in the show, which has been kind of removed from the DSM, but... Um, but that I think was a pretty good representation because it kind of showed a lot of the struggles that the family went through mm-hmm. um, as a whole. You know, when he did have meltdowns, when he did have those harder days, um, you know, when he didn't really know how to play with other kids. So I think we're definitely getting there. Um, but I think it's going to be a matter of, you know, people want to see more representation in terms of like, well, maybe get an individual with autism to portray right. an individual with autism. Yeah. Um, so. You and know, maybe think, more of like the nonverbal, yeah. And like, yeah, show what that's like, yeah, um, and show how you know how there are so many different ways for an individual to communicate. I have a kid right now who uses one of those AAC devices. He uses an iPad with a particular program, and 
this kid, he's four. And when he started using it, we started to realize like he knows how to spell. Hmm. And we wow. didn't expect that. Yeah. Like he can't say words vocally, but he was typing out you know, it wasn't perfect. He wasn't spelling everything correctly, but we could figure out what he wanted to do. So now we're teaching him to be able to type so that right. he can type his own sentences. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, yeah, and you don't always you don't always see that. You don't always get those um, those stories. Okay, um, that's pretty much the questions that I had. Is there anything that we missed that you wanted to make sure? Well, I guess I did have one more of what's next for you with kind of your goals for yeah. your center. Yeah. yeah so. I'm kind of at a point where I'm still trying to almost find my niche. Like my center is going well. Um, you know, we're we we've got a lot of kids coming in and you know, getting kids into school and you know, outside of needing the intensive services, but there's so much more that I want to be able to do. Um and I mentioned in my grad training I worked a lot in schools and um, I'm really hoping, you know, Michigan's a little behind on this uh, because in a lot of other states, schools are able to hire behavior analysts or contract with them to be able to work with their kids in the classroom settings. In Michigan, that's not a thing right mm -hmm. now, um, with the exception of a couple school districts who had the funding to be able to hire somebody to work throughout the district. Um, right now, Medicaid doesn't recognize BCBAs in the school setting the way that okay. they do social workers and speech therapists and occupational therapists. Um, they're working on it. So my hope is that I will be able to start um, maybe contracting with some school districts to be able to get involved there a little more. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of what I did was, if, if anybody's familiar with the, you know, RTI system, a response to intervention system in schools, it basically places kids into tiers. Um, so you have your tier one interventions, which are usually class-wide interventions. Kids don't really need the individualization. Um, it's just behavior management within the classroom, you know, like the mm -hmm. color code system, the right. red, yellow, green. Um, and then there's tier two, which is a child can stay within a gen ed classroom, but maybe needs some more individualization. And then your tier three is usually it gets to a point where their behavior is so difficult to work with that they have to remove them from okay. a typical classroom. So I did a lot of work with the RTI system with trying to get kids from tier three back to tier one. Okay. So that's a big goal. Um, my dream is to open up my own school. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, I am hoping to be able to um, open up an inclusion school so that it's kids both on the spectrum and other disabilities and typically developing children um, so that we do just start to see, um, you know, more opportunities and, you know, maybe going like the kind of the charter school route. But um, there is there are a lot of different teaching methods within ABA um, to use with both typically developing children and um, kids with disabilities. And I'm hoping to be able to kind of incorporate all of that together so that families too, who, you know, maybe haven't had as good experiences in the public education system or even the private education system can have somewhere else to go where they don't feel like once they're done with the intensive ABA, there's no other option for mm -hmm. them. Um, okay. So. Do the kids kind of like graduate from your program? Um, to an extent. I mean, we don't make it like a graduation, but they yeah. um, we consider it a transition. Okay. So they transition out of our program. Okay. Um, for some, it could be, you know, they transition out completely mm -hmm. um, and they're they're in a classroom setting, whether it's special education classrooms or gen ed. Um, and some we have to do it a lot more gradually. Okay. Um, we did recently start offering a few like evening sessions a week, um, just Monday through Thursday for those kids who maybe still need a little extra help. Um, but they don't need the intensive services. Okay. So we offer about six hours a week okay. um, doing that for some of those kiddos who are kind of in the middle of that transition. Okay. If you were to open your own school, would you keep the Spark Center for Autism 
then maybe pass it off to somebody else or would you have both or yeah yeah well and I I my goal is you know I want to continue being the owner of the spark center um but maybe not have to be there every day um to run it because right now I'm at a point where like I don't even have my own caseload of kids anymore so I'm not practicing clinically um and I do miss that part but um I definitely want to be able to branch out and you know work in other areas and to be quite honest get out of having to deal with health insurance yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay um do do you and your group ever like go speak at places like how do you guys get the word out about what you do yeah um so we I have done um you know presentations at some of our local conferences um you know there's a behavior analysis association of Michigan um that is located at eastern Ypsilanti um and I've done like presentations there but um I've done some talks here and there you know I'll speak to schools or um I just did one actually at better health market okay um that I did in collaboration with somebody else who's kind of like a life coach and a a nutritionist Mm -hmm. Um, and we just talked a lot about how like ABA and diet can make a lot of differences Mm -hmm. um, with kids with autism because a lot of kids with autism also have like gastrointestinal issues and things like that. Um, so we talked about that, um, and that was a, a very interesting one because I don't really know that whole side right, of it. Right, right. Yeah. Um, but okay. yeah, you know, I'll um, and I'm, I'm hoping to be able to do that a lot more. You know, be able to to work with schools and you know other communities and things like that, and do more events. Okay. Um, like that. Okay. Are there resources that you have found helpful, like any books or podcasts or anything that you have found helpful? Yeah. So there is um, a website called asatonline.org. A S A T. It's the Association for Science and autism treatment. Um, so asatonline.org. Um, this is one that I give to parents all the time too. Um, I just think it's so great because it kind of gives a breakdown of pretty much every type of treatment that has been made available for autism. Um, and it's a an independent group who, an organization, a nonprofit organization, where they do the research for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so they'll kind of go through everything that has been done for that particular treatment and tell you They'll summarize it and they'll tell you whether it's considered evidence-based, um, whether it works or it doesn't work or it needs more research or, you know, whatever it is. Because, um, you know, there's a lot. There's a lot out there yeah. that parents have to rifle through. And honestly, there's some that's, you know, quite dangerous, mm-hmm. too. Um, you know, chelation therapy is one where it's like removing mercury from the, the body, oh, thinking geez. that there's like mercury toxicity. Um, and that has led to death. Yeah. Um, you know, if you don't actually have mercury poisoning, right. you shouldn't do chelation. Oof. Yeah. Um, so it, it just gives parents an opportunity to kind of do their own research without somebody, another provider there, like shoving it down their throats mm-hmm. and saying like, well, you should just be doing what I, what right. I'm telling you to do. Um, so that one's really great. Um, for people who are interested in the field of behavior analysis, um, there's a podcast called behavioral observations, which is great. Um, but you know, I don't necessarily know that that would be as great for like the the layman, right? It's <laughs> um, unless you're, yeah, yeah, unless you're interested in the field, but um, that's pretty cool. But there's a there are a couple books. Um, the first is called "Let Me Hear Your Voice," um, which was written by a parent who had two children on the spectrum back in the '70s and '80s, which was kind of when ABA was first emerging as a treatment for autism, um, and it kind of talked about her journey with her her children and. Um, you know, that's a really good one for parents sometimes to read. Um, and then um, Ron Sanderson is an adult with autism who he does a lot of, he's written a few books. Um, he also is a professor um, and he works at a hospital. 
Um, and he does a lot of motivational speaking. Okay. So looking him up, um, he does a lot of just advocacy too. Um, and I think he is really great for giving parents a lot of hope and resources too. Okay. So you knew my dad. I forgot to mention in the beginning that Reno and I went to high school yes. together. So you knew my, fa- you've known my family for a long time. Yeah. Um, and so he, one thing that he always used to say is build each other up, don't tear each mm-hmm. other down. And so I always have somebody, I always have the guests give me somebody that they want to build up. Yeah. So I'll let you do that. Yeah. Well, and what I love about what he said about the build each other up, don't, don't tear each other down is that is like the core of behavior analysis. Mm-hmm. You know, we use um, a lot of what we call principles of reinforcement. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's what it is, is yeah. reinforcing the behaviors that we want to see occur more often. So I just, I love that, yeah. um, that that's what he always said. Um, but one person is um, a colleague of mine, Liz. She is also a behavior analyst um, and she actually is living in Germany with her husband who is German. Um, and she actually, she and I, along with my former business partner, we started another Spark Center over in Germany um, oh, wow. a few years back. That's exciting. And yeah. Um, it now is just Liz's, mm-hmm. um, just because of the way that, you know, things worked out. But um, she just is very inspirational with everything that she has had to do there mm-hmm. on her own. You know, there's not a lot there in terms of, you know, autism services and behavior analysis. So um, I really want her to move back. (laughs) But we actually have talked about opening that school together. Um, But she's just really um, incredible with everything that she's doing there, Um, you know, for the kids who are there too, because there aren't a lot of resources. And she's one of the few um, that, you know, is an option for a lot of families there. Um, So I just think that she's incredible. Um, We talk every week. Um, and she's just a really great person for me to, you know, vent to yeah. or to talk about. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is great. So there's that. And then, you know, we talked a lot about the families that mm-hmm. we work with and just parents of individuals with autism. Um, and that's another one. Just everything that they have to go through and everything that they work towards, um, you know, again, just wanting to remind them to be kind to themselves um, and to just give them so much credit where credit is due um, for all of the hard work that they do and, you know, showing how much they love and care for their children. And, um, you know, I think I really want to get to a point where people don't say things like, oh, you work with individuals with autism or, oh, you have a child with autism. You know, that's so hard. I can't believe yeah, you. I, I would imagine you get that a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that's wonderful, but I, I really hope to be able to get to a point where it's kind of like, Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. That it's yeah. not looked at as like this saint-like thing um, yeah. that it's just like, oh, yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's a part of everyday life. Um, but building up all of yeah. those families, too. Okay. And then um, anything fun that you would like to recommend? So sometimes it's yeah. a book, sometimes it's a restaurant, a song. Mm-hmm. It's been all different kinds yeah. of things. So um, Yeah, I... My husband and I are really into board games. Oh, you um, are? That's yeah, fun. we do yeah. a lot of game nights with friends, and um, there are a lot of really fun ones. Um, there's a, a web show called Tabletop. Um, it used to be free, but now you do have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. But some of the old episodes would probably be available. But um, it's Will Wheaton. He is an actor, 
um, from like Star Trek and <laughs> he's been on the Big Bang Theory and things, but he will um, talk about, you know, just new board games and play them with his friends so that you can kind of see what it is. But we've played quite a few fun ones recently. One was called um, Deception, uh, Murder in Hong Kong, um, but it's kind of a mix between um, Secret Hitler and Werewolf. I don't know if you've ever played those, but um, basically you... Um, seems a little morbid but it's actually really fun one person is kind of you're all um investigators but one person is the um the murderer <laughs> and one is the accomplice okay um and the accomplice you know has to try to you know steer people away from guessing who the murderer is but you have little tiles that oh, you chose fun. what your yeah you kind of chose what your weapon of choice was but they're really ridiculous things yeah. um and you know the the um forensic scientist has to try to give clues mm -hmm. um, to everybody else and you all get a chance to guess who it is and if nobody guesses yeah. by the end of the turns um, then the murderer wins but um, it's really comical yeah. and really fun um, so that's a good one and then lanterns is another fun one okay um, it's just it's really pretty uh, the board and the pieces <laughs> are really pretty and it's just a fun quick game that you can play with you know a few other people yeah. okay where can people find more about the Spark Center for Autism? Yeah. Um, so we have a website and a Facebook page. Um, the website is just sparkcenterforautism.com, and our Facebook page is Spark Center for Autism. Okay. Do you guys take volunteers or no? Um, not so much. Okay. It kind of depends um, on the length of volunteer work okay. just because it does take a lot of initial training. Um, yeah. You know, our staff have to train for like 60 to 80 hours right. before they're allowed to work yeah. with the kids. But um, we have been getting that question a lot more lately. So I'm definitely trying to see if there are other ways okay. to be able to. What about like fundraisers? Or, like... We are for profit. Okay. Um, so if we ever do fundraising, it's actually for other groups. So like the Autism Alliance okay. and things like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. I was just curious how people can yeah. support you. So I guess well, just I spread the word. It. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I think that's it. I I learned a lot. So okay. I probably could have asked <laughs> like a hundred more questions. Um, yeah, I think time. I I think I am going to be interviewing um, a mom who has a child with autism, oh, which great. I think will give us a good after after you kind of explaining the yeah. clinical stuff. I think we'll get, give a good perspective That'll of what cool. it's like to to have. Yeah that so um i appreciate you coming and, you and teaching me. all of us all of these things and if anybody has any questions farina feel free to reach out to me and i will make yes, sure i get them to her. so thank you very much thank you that was fun <laughs>